Deuteronomy chapter 5, we're going to begin this morning in verse 6. And I invite you to stand with me this morning in reverence to God's word. God is speaking here to his people when he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son, or your daughter, or your male servant, or your female servant, or your ox, or your donkey, or any of your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. You may be seated. The text that I read this morning is most likely familiar to you. It may be more familiar from Exodus chapter 20 where we have the Ten Commandments that God gives to his people. But here as Moses is leading the people into the promised land, there is a, a repeat, a repetition of the Ten Commandments, a reminder to the people of the commands that God had given them. A few minutes ago when the praise team was up here, Susan mentioned that when we look around us, it should be obvious to us that we live in a, a time of great turmoil it should be obvious to us that we live in a dark age in the history of not only our country and not only the world as we know it today, but in all of humanity, we, we live in a, a very dark time, a time when sin is running rampant through our society, a, a time when there is no moral compass that people go by, but each one does what is right in his or her own eyes. What that is ultimately, and we should understand this, is the fact that people are under the bondage of sin. It's interesting because sometimes we like to talk as human beings about our free will and our freedom and our ability to do this, that, or the other, but the reality is, if, if we really look at the world the way it actually exists, all people everywhere are under bondage. And they're under bondage, the Bible describes to us, is, is one or the other type of bondage. Either people are under bondage to sin, they're under bondage to the world, however you would like to describe it, or we are under the bondage of Christ. So we are either a slave to sin, to the world, or we're a slave, a servant, under bondage to Christ. 
And so this morning, this text is presented to these people who are about to enter this promised land, and they are being told that they have been delivered from bondage, bondage in slavery, actual physical slavery in Egypt, and they are being delivered out of that into a promised land where they will be under, if they are faithful, to the bondage of God. You say, well, I don't like that. I want to be free of everything. Well, that's tough. I can't do anything about that. I can't invent a third option for you. I don't even know. I mean, how do you have a third option? The first two cover everything. And so this morning, if you have been delivered from the slavery and bondage of sin by Christ, then you are therefore under his bondage. You are now a slave to Christ. And you say, well, that sounds, that sounds terrible. Who would want to be that? It's the most glorious thing you can have. It's the most wonderful experience in the world. And so this morning, and then again next week, what we're going to see as we look at the things we call the Ten Commandments is how they provide for us essential commands for those who have been delivered from bondage. So this morning we see four of them, as we look at these first four commands, we see four essential commands for those who have been delivered from bondage. So if if you have been delivered from bondage, and I, I mean here bondage from sin then there's some things that the Lord has told you that are essential for you to either do or not to do. And so some of the Ten Commandments are in the positive things, do this. And others are in the negative, do not do this. But they're all essential as we think about our relationship with God since He has delivered us from bondage. So let's look, the first one, four essential commands, the first one is that delivered people are to have no other gods. Delivered people are to have no other gods. God speaks to them in verse 6, and he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and here is the trade-off for you being delivered. The first one is that as a delivered person... You're to have no other gods before me. We've talked before, and I don't want to belabor the point, we've talked before about the fact that they lived in this wicked pagan culture, and in this wicked pagan culture, there was the frequent worship of many different gods. The people at this time had a God that they called upon for almost everything that occurred in their life. They would call upon a God when they were going to go out and plant. They would call upon a God when they are going to harvest. They were called upon a God when they were going to get married, when they were going to have children, when the, the, they needed rain, when they wanted the rain to stop. They always had a God that they would call upon. And they had a very well-crafted theological design around these false gods. And here, the people of God were were being told that, that there was only one God, and he was to be the sole object of their worship for everything. So it did not matter what was happening in their life. It, it did not matter what circumstance they were facing. There was to always be one God, this one God, the Lord their God, who they would go to in times of both struggle and in times of blessing. And this was going to be far different from anything that they had experienced in Egypt. It was going to be far different from anything that they were experiencing in the land that they were about to occupy. And so they had to reorient their mind to thinking there is only one God, and He is our God, and He is the only God that we are to worship. And so the first command is not the ones that we think about oftentimes, that we, quote, honor your father and mother. We, we go further down the list. But, but God begins with the fact that, that none of the rest of this is going to be relevant 
if you have other gods before me. Nothing else, no, no other part of the Scripture, no other part of the Ten Commandments, no other part of the Bible is relevant if we miss this first command. This first essential command for a person who has been delivered. Friends, if you say this morning that God has delivered your soul from the bondage and slavery of sin, and yet, in your heart, you worship other gods, making that statement about your delivery is irrelevant. Making that statement about you having been delivered from sin is a worthless statement if after making it, your heart then goes and worships other gods. Now, I understand that none of you in this room that I am aware of has some shrine in your home to a false god, some thought-out theological framework for some other God that none of us have ever heard of. But friends, our hearts are prone to wonder. We're prone to try to put something else in God's place. We're, we're prone to seek after other sources to meet our needs. That's what we do. That's, that's what our hearts are prone to do. That's what the, the wickedness that, that lives deep within inside of us is prone to come out, and that's how it manifests itself. Instead of God supplying our needs, we, we want to look somewhere else. Instead of the Bible being sufficient for the questions that we have, we want to look somewhere else. We're prone to set up for ourselves other gods in the place of the one true God who says, I am the Lord your God. And while he did not bring us physically out of Egypt and bondage there, he has, if we are in Christ, delivered us from the bondage of our sin. And so just as he told them, I have delivered you, you will have no other gods before me. He is also saying to us, I have delivered you and you will have no other gods before me. Delivered people are to have no other gods. I would encourage you this morning. Are there other gods that you fall down and worship in place of the Lord our God? If you tell me that you have never been tempted to worship at the altar of another God, I have concerns because that is the temptation that is presented to us by our sin is to go and worship someone else. Friends, even if the other God that you worship is the person you see when you look in the mirror, you and I are tempted to worship other gods. And that will not do for a person who has been delivered by Christ. You're to have no other gods before the Lord your God. The second essential command. Delivered people are to have no carved image. Now, I would imagine that when you are reading the Ten Commandments, if you, if you can breeze quickly through the first one and you get to this one, you feel better about yourself. You feel better because, okay, I got through the first one. I got to this one, and I know that's not a problem. Because I don't have any carved images. When I was growing up, and I don't know if they still do or not, but 
when I was a kid, my parents had my, my parents have some trinkets in their house. Anybody else have parents that have trinkets in their house? Yes. Some of you who are under fifty have no idea what that word means. Um, it's uh, a a polite, dignified way of saying junk. But but not but not necessarily in multitudes, but in in, in small ornamental things, trinkets. And so my parents have some of those. Your parents do. You're just too embarrassed to raise your hand. We're trying to be honest. This is church. You can do that sort of thing. But hey, you know, whatever. But my parents had a uh, Buddha sitting in their uh, laundry room. Now, some of you are going to confront my parents about that now. And I just want to warn you, I would confront my dad, not my mom, about that. Because none of you can go toe-to-toe with her. I mean, it's just not going to work. You're going to lose. Cotton Farm, Stony Point, she wins, Whatever. It has no religious significance. My parents would have no idea what this is. I don't know where they got it. I'm sure it was probably at some type of yard sale or flea market or something like that. It was most likely used for a paperweight, if that, but it was just there. And my parents, again, most of you know them, are not Buddhists. They're the furthest thing you can be from Buddhists. Whatever the opposite of that is, that's my parents'. But they had this thing in their house, and again, I don't know where it came from. I doubt they really even knew what it was, but it was just there. And I was always fascinated by it because it was like, all this stuff in our house, that is out of place. And again, I don't know if it's still there or not, but that is not making for yourself a carved image. Because again, I don't even know how it got there, and I definitely know it wasn't being worshipped. And we like to look at that with this text, and therefore be able to rule out ourselves of ever being guilty of this commandment. And this text for the people of God here who are escaping from Egypt and going into the promised land, that is what this is talking about. It it is talking about making for yourself the image of something and then worshiping it. And so we have seen this through most religions and cultures throughout history, right? Many of the Native American cultures that were here when our forefathers came to this country, they had made for themselves carved images, correct? They had images that sat outside of their homes. Again, people, if you visit uh, Asia, if you go to a Buddhist temple, if you go to other, some, some of the other places of religious worship, they have made for themselves carved images, and they fall down and carry out worship in front of these images. Unfortunately, some groups that call themselves Christians have adopted similar practices. If you go and visit the Eastern Orthodox Church, their churches are beautiful and ornate, and they are covered with images both of Christ and of saints and of patriarchs and things like that. Now, we could debate on whether or not they are falling down and worshiping those images, but especially in the Eastern Orthodox Church, those images are an essential part of their worship experience. Why, when you walk into this church, do we not have a picture of Jesus up here? I've been in churches that do. Baptist churches that have some alleged picture of a blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus in the vestibule, foyer, whatever you call it. Now, do they fall down and worship before that image? No. Does it make me really uncomfortable? Yes. Do they care if it makes me uncomfortable? No, again, that's why it's there. But what is the essence of this? Because we realize that, that, okay, we are Christians. Most of you are Christians. Some of you are not. And we hope that you will come to faith in Christ. But, but most of you in this room are Christians. You follow Christ. We do not fall down and worship before an image. We have not carved out for ourselves some remembrance, some representation of God. Why is this so important? Let's look, he explains this one further to to give more information. The first one is very clear-cut. You're to have no other gods before me, and he leaves it there. But he, he provides here more explanation. 
You shall not, verse 8, make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or that is on earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am jealous, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. So here's the reason we don't do this. One, it goes back to the first commandment. You're not to carve anything out because you're to only worship God. And how has God chosen to reveal himself? In a bird, correct? No. In, in the waves of the ocean? Nope. He chose to reveal himself through his word. In the burning bush, Moses hears a voice at Mount Horeb. The people hear his voice. If we go forward to the prophets, what happens? God comes to them and stands beside them and, and hands them something, right? No. Many of the prophets, if you go and you read their testimonies that are presented in their books, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. The word of the Lord came to this prophet and that prophet. We come to the New Testament, and what do we have? In, in John chapter 1, in the beginning was what? The, the eagle that God revealed himself in, correct? The, the bull. No, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. God chose to reveal himself by his word. And so what do we do when we make a carved image and when people make a, make a carved image? One, they violate the first commandment because they've set up some other God. How do we know that? Because God did not reveal himself in an image. Matter of fact, the New Testament gets more specific and says the image of God is to be seen perfectly in his son. Jesus is the image of God. And so, so Jesus, or God rather, chose not to reveal himself in some animal, in some uh, uh, natural uh, event on earth, in some mountain, in some water. He chose to reveal himself when, with his word, and then in the New Testament, the word becomes flesh. And John says that he, Jesus, dwells among us. And so that's why we don't make a carved image that's why we do not have a picture of Jesus hanging in our sanctuary. Because we don't worship him that way. We do not worship him through his picture. We worship him through his word. Because not, not because he couldn't, but that is how he chose to reveal himself to us. And that's very important. And so for us as Christians, we can look at this and say, well, okay, we, we don't have uh, that problem. We don't have these images. But, but we do need to remember that the principle here goes back to the first commandment that we do not worship any other gods. He says in verse 9, you'll not bow down and serve them. Because in verse 9 and 10, he is jealous. God is jealous. He doesn't, he doesn't want your affections to go somewhere else. So Rachel and I go to Pigeon Forge for a couple of days. Do you think it would have went over well if one afternoon I said, Hey, um, my ex-girlfriend is here. Uh, I don't know how I know that, but she's here in Pigeon Forge, and she wanted to know if I want to go just have lunch. You mind staying here at the cabin while me and my ex-girlfriend go have lunch? Wives, how many of you would vote for that? Now, some of you, wait, let's not vote, because some of you just might not be real happy with your man today, and you might raise your hand to try to get rid of him. So we won't vote that way. But in a moment when you're not angry with your man, I would assume that you would not support this action. Why? Well, because you'd kill him, right? I mean, that's justifiable homicide in Burke County. You can get away with that. 
he goes to lunch with his ex-girlfriend and you stab him when he gets home? I'm not voting not guilty on the jury. That's acceptable. But you'd be jealous, right? So how infinitely more so is God jealous when we decide that we're going to then in our lives set up other gods that we're going to worship? That we're going to make for ourselves images. So maybe we don't carve them, but maybe it's our favorite sports team. It's already been carved for us. We've got their shirt and we've got their hat. And instead of wearing it out of our our enjoyment of the game, we wear it because it's become worship for us. Have you thought about that? It can cross over. You take money. Money can be done for much good. We can, we can give it away. We can help people with it. We can use it for the benefit of the kingdom. But we can fall in love with it and worship it. And God becomes jealous toward that. He says, am I not a jealous God who exact vengeance? Not only on the person that does this, but what does he say? He says, I keep going, visiting iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Now, notice, if you go to the New Testament... Jesus talks about the the child not being responsible for the sins of the father. And that's true, because what does he add on here? What does he caveat? To those who hate me. He says, I'll just keep pouring it on. To those who keep abandoning me generation after generation after generation, I will continue to pour on punishment and judgment to them. Is this not a foretaste of what is going to happen in the lives of the people of Israel? That to the third and fourth generation, they will continue to abandon God, continue to worship false idols, and he will continue to send his vengeance upon them. But, but look what he says. To those who don't, to those who continue to follow him, those who do not worship other gods, he says, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Do you think it's serious? Do you think it's more serious than the jealousy that your spouse would have toward you leaving them? It's infinitely worse. God's feeling toward us leaving him to worship other gods. That's the second thing. So delivered people have no other gods, are to have no other gods. Delivered people are to have no carved image. Then the third thing here, delivered people are to not take the Lord's name in vain. Verse 11, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes the name, his name in vain. In other words, God will hold you guilty. That's the opposite of that. God will not hold you guiltless. He will hold you guilty. Now, when we think about this, when we think about taking the Lord's name in vain, we think about using it in some type of profanity. So if we utter some profanity and we include God in there, that's taking the Lord's name in vain. I just want to be honest with you. That has never been sufficient for me. Like, that's never been a sufficient explanation for what this means. Because it seems like to me, because these are Ten Commandments, they're pretty important, it, it, it seems like there's more depth there than just uttering a profanity with God's name there. I found an, a man by the name of Joseph Excel, 1900, so he wrote this 116 years ago, he, he gives a list here, and I, they're better than anything I was going to come up with, so I just wanted to share them with you, of what it means to take the Lord's name in vain. He says, first, that taking the Lord's name in vain is not making any profession of religion as being afraid or ashamed to own that in which the name of God is so much concerned. He says, the first thing is just not coming to faith in Christ, because that's what his name is about. Is taking the Lord's name in vain. He uses the word religion here as they would have a hundred years ago in a positive way. We often use it in a negative way, but he means the Christian religion. Second, 
Persons take the name of God in vain when, though they make a profession of religion, yet it is not in such a way as God has required. And this is done by using his attributes, ordinances, or works in which he makes himself known in an unbecoming manner. So in other words, you fake coming to Christ. You, you, you say that you've come to Jesus. You even get baptized. He mentions the ordinance. You just take the Lord's Supper. But you don't really mean it. And you don't really do it right. The third, the name of God is taken in vain by blasphemy, which is thinking or speaking reproachfully of him as though he had no right to the glory that belongs to his name. That one's probably closer to what we normally think about. Using God's name in some way that brings down his glory. That would be profanity. Fourth, this commandment is broken by not using religious oaths in a right manner or by violating them, or on the other hand, by all sinful and profane oaths and cursing. Again, the way we use God's name, using it inappropriately. Fifthly, this commandment is also broken by murmuring, curiously prying into and misapplying God's decrees or provinces or perverting what he has revealed in his word. When we apply things sacred to profane uses and have not a due regard to the glory of God, which is contained therein. This one, friends, gets used all the time. There's a church out in Kansas, Westboro Baptist Church. You've heard of it. They go and they protest at the funerals of soldiers, of people that are killed by violence. And they do so in the name of God. They attribute the things that have happened to God's wrath. Maybe you do that. Maybe you need to stop. Because you don't know. Because we're told in the Bible that, that it rains on the just and the unjust, that, that sometimes good things happen to bad people. And so when you decide, or I decide, hey, you know what? That was just God getting them. We have taken the Lord's name in vain. If your first response when the shooting happened in Orlando was it's not so bad because the majority of them were homosexuals and God was just giving out his judgment, you took the Lord's name in vain because you don't know that. Could it have been? Maybe. Could it have not been? Maybe. But you don't know. So what he says here is anytime you or I try to give God credit for something that his word did not say that he for sure did, we have taken his name in vain. It's exactly what the people at Westboro Baptist Church do. Every time they go and protest a funeral is they take the Lord's name in vain because they try to attribute something to him that they don't know if it was his. Sixth, this commandment is further broken by making use of God's name as a charm as when the writing or pronouncing some name of God is pretended to be an expedient to heal diseases or drive away evil spirits. You ever seen this happen? Those fake healers on television? Have you ever thought about the fact they're taking the Lord's name in vain? Because they are. The Bible doesn't prescribe to us where you go and you heal people by just laying on your hands with with nothing else going on. We need to understand that there are very specific things that are going on in the New Testament when those things are happening. And for us to think that we can simply repeat that because we say a couple magic words, we've taken the Lord's name in vain. And then seventh, finally here, this commandment is further broken by reviling or opposing God's truth grace and ways, whereby we cast contempt on that which is most sacred and lightly esteem that which he sets such a value on and makes himself known by. When any person stands against God's truth, grace, and ways, again, belittling what is sacred and lifting up what has no value, we again are taking God's name in vain. Friends, this happens in TV preaching all the time. People will take one verse and they'll twist it. They'll manipulate it so that they can somehow make you think that if you don't have this or that or aren't doing this or that, you're not living faithfully to God. 
the people that tell you that that if you, if you don't have a lot of money and a fancy house and a nice car, that you've got a problem of faith or taking the Lord's name in vain. Because the Bible tells us that our God, you know, Jesus, uh, many of these preachers apparently have never heard of him, but, but he, he, Jesus, New Testament, you know, he, he had no place to lay his head. And yet, Apparently, he was of little faith because if he'd had more faith, he'd have had a big, fancy, uh, you know, uh, house to live in, and he wouldn't have been, you know, persecuted and, and killed. Friends, when people present you that, what they have done is taken our Lord's name in vain. So I would encourage you with this list, and I, I hope to, to post this for those of you who are online so you can look at it, and, and I know it's a little wordy because it's, it's written a while back, but... But friends, we shouldn't just think about taking the Lord's name in vain as that narrow thought of, okay, he, he, he uttered a profanity. Y'all know what it is. Not like I'm going to, this church, not like I'm going to say it. You know what it is. That, that one particular profanity, and that's taking the Lord's name in vain. Yes, but it's a lot bigger than that. And he says, I will not hold him guiltless who takes the Lord's name in vain. We need to watch that. We need to be careful with it because our Lord's name is the glorious and holy name of the creator of the universe. And so we shouldn't just throw it around. We shouldn't just give him credit for things that are not his. Try to put things on him that are not his responsibility. And try to say he's going to do things that he has never promised. We need to be careful with the Lord's name. And then the fourth essential command beginning in verse 12 delivered people are to keep the sabbath delivered people are to keep the sabbath he says in verse 12 observe the sabbath to keep it holy as the lord your god commanded you six days you shall labor and do all your work but the seventh is a sabbath to the lord your god the concept of the Sabbath is something that comes along before this. As a matter of fact, what does he say? He says um, that you are to observe the Sabbath. It was already happening. The Sabbath is a concept that goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. It's not something that starts here with the law. It's one of the few commands that exist in the Bible that were given before the fall of mankind. And therefore, one, we should understand that it is important. Now, for the Jewish people, the Sabbath was to be kept between sundown on Friday and sundown on Saturday. And the Sabbath was such an intricate part of their worship that there were a multitude of laws that were laid out for people to follow. And they were very specific. As a matter of fact, by the time of Jesus, they had become so specific that people were really afraid to do anything. And there were laws that were put on top of laws that were put on top of laws to make sure that you never even got close to violating the first one. And the unfortunate manner, and we see this in Jesus' ministry, is that the Sabbath had been ruined by those laws because it had become a burden for people to keep the Sabbath. But the Sabbath was not supposed to be and is not supposed to be a burden. In fact, it's supposed to be the opposite of a burden. It's supposed to be for your benefit. It's supposed to be for your rest. It's supposed to be for your joy. The Sabbath, as we see again in the book of Genesis, God creates for six days, and on the seventh day, he rested from all of his work. And so then the pattern is handed down from there to human beings in general that that is to be a pattern of their labor. That we all, because of how we are made in the image of God, need a time of rest. Now, I have known many people and many pastors who believed that any type of rest was bad. The problem with that is that is an unbiblical concept. God did not create us to work seven days a week. In fact, working seven days a week is not keeping with his design of us. 
Even God rested on the seventh day. Now, you and I need to understand that when we come to the New Testament, we see that there is a transformation when it comes to our worship. So the people of God in the Old Testament and in Jesus' day worshipped on the Sabbath. So they worshipped on Saturday. That was the day they went to uh, that's the day they went to the synagogue. That's the day that they had their worship. If you look at the, church, the Seventh-day Adventist church, they still do that. They still have their worship service on Saturday. The problem is in the New Testament, the day of worship is changed to the first day of the week. That's why it's important that we gather to worship on Sunday. Not that we can't worship any other day of the week. Not that, I don't even think God... Um, is upset with people that say, well, I can't worship on Sunday, but I do go to a worship on Saturday or on Tuesday or wherever. I don't think it's the case. But the, the normal pattern of worship in the New Testament is to worship on Sunday because that is the day that Christ was raised from the dead. And so we see in the New Testament that early on the first day of the week, which is Sunday, they went to the tomb and found that the tomb was empty. And so from there, a pattern emerges of the people of God worshiping on the first day of the week. But we need to understand that that does not remove from us the responsibility to observe a Sabbath day of rest. See, that's where a lot of people get it confused. You know, I've heard growing up, you heard growing up, you know, we're going to worship on the Sabbath day. Today is not the Jewish Sabbath day, just so that everybody knows. It's not like, oh, the preacher, he's introducing something new and trendy into the church. No, it's like 3,000 years old that they worshiped on Saturday, so it's not new. That is separate. The day of worship is separate from this command because this command is not about worship in so much as we're going to a place and we're having a time of worship, this is about ceasing from labor. And much of it is about a trust issue with God. Because when we decide we have got to work seven days a week, we can never take a break, we can never have any time off, what we have done is said to God, God, I know better than you. You said it could be done in six days, but God, you don't understand the economy. God, you, you, said, you said six you know, six days could do it, but I, I got a lot of mouths to feed. Yeah, because we know better than God. That worked out really well in the book of Genesis. You know, the next chapter after this command's given. So I want to encourage you. That if, if, you're, if you're wanting to be delivered from sin, sin tells us that we have to work seven days a week. Sin tells us that we need more and more and more and more, that we've got to grow it bigger, we've got to grow it better, we've got to have more money, that we've got to do more stuff. That's what sin tells us. God says, take a step back. I did it in six days, the whole world. You can do whatever you need to do in six and you can give a day of rest. If that day for you is Sunday, and I understand that for many it will have to be, then Sunday should be filled with worship and rest. As you probably imagine, I don't get to take Sundays off every Sunday from work. Some of you assume this is the only day I work. I would like to show you my calendar to dispute that, but we won't do that this morning. That's why churches have traditionally given their pastors a day off during the week. Why? Because it's, it's just it's necessary. I don't know anyone who works seven days a week and is happy. Lost, saved, irrelevant, because this is not a command for God's people Remember, this is a command given before the fall. This is a command for all humanity. If you do not take this day off, if you do not get away from work, take some rest, you will not have enjoyment with God's creation. It's simply not the way it works. 
But as a person who has been delivered by Christ, delivered from the bondage of sin, you need to step away and give God a day of rest. In that day, he says in verse 13 and 14, work is to cease. And he's very specific. He says, don't, don't, don't you take a day off and leave your slaves out working. You know, I'm not working today, so I'm taking a Sabbath, but you weren't working the other days anyways. You're just overseeing their work. He says, even if someone visits with you in your land, they are not part of your people. They are not part of the people of God. They are not to work on the Sabbath. He says, on the Sabbath, you can remember what God has done. So God has given you this day off. Verse 14, I mean, rather verse 15. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So you take that day away from work. And remember what God has done. Again, if, if, if your Sabbath day is going to be on Sunday, you do that by coming to worship. But from there, you don't go back and, and okay, I, I, I did my hour at church. I've got to go back to the grind. I've got to go back to, got to hit the ground running. If, if that's the case, you've got to find another day. And listen, I, I, I know this is difficult. I know that people are working to support their families and all those things. I'm just telling you that it will not work long term because you are not built that way. You're simply not made to work like that. Not because of anything I said. Not because, well, if you were stronger minded or I know some of you men, you're thinking, hey, you know, I'm tough enough to do this. It will not work because that's not how God made you. He said, you've got to take time away from that. You've got to take time away to reflect on what I've done. Four essential commands for those who are delivered from bondage. We know these commands. We know these laws. We know these commandments because we've heard them. We've heard them growing up. We've seen them in Sunday school. We, we see them posted on, on uh, walls and pictures. We, we see them. They are so vital to us but if we don't understand that they are commands because we have been delivered we're not going to understand their meaning we're going to gloss over some of them and never think of their importance to our life but friends these are important things these are these are important commands because we have been delivered by god the good news is that these commands are for our benefit. They're for our good. So often people look at the Bible and they say, well, that's such a restriction on my freedom. God, is, God doesn't want me to have any fun. God doesn't want me to do this or he doesn't want me to do that. But the, the reality is that these are commands that have been given to us because we have been set free. And so they are, they are commands of freedom. We, we aren't burdened. By the worship of other gods. We, we aren't burdened by having to make for ourselves images. We, we aren't burdened by having a God whose name has no power. When we speak our God's name, it has great power. We're, we're not burdened by needing to work seven days a week because there's no one out there to take care of us. But we've been freed by a God who says... Take a day, rest, remember me, because I'm enough. Friends, as we look at this list, I hope that if you are in Christ, you can see the power that God has demonstrated in delivering us through his word. He's delivered us out of bondage, and he's given us these commands for our freedom. I hope that there are things that will encourage you, point you in the right direction, and show you his love and grace. We bow your heads with me as we pray. Heavenly Father, we are beyond grateful. 
that you have chosen to look at us and deliver us out of bondage. You have delivered us out of our sin. You have delivered us out of the wickedness of our heart. And you've given us freedom. And God, my prayer is that we would hear your words and find the freedom that they contain. That, that we would hear your, God, your good message to us. And that your words would be words that we would live by. That, that when we're tempted to worship other gods, you would remind us that we're to have no other gods. And when we're tempted to use your name in a way that is inappropriate, you would remind us that your name is holy and precious. When we're tempted to, to work more and to, to try to obtain more because we think that's what we need, you would remind us, God, that you have given us a day of freedom. You have set aside a day that we are to cease worship, we are to cease working and have a day where our heart is attuned to rest and to you. God, I pray that this morning you would speak to hearts. God, you would speak to people who are in bondage to their sin. You would speak to people who are in bondage to their God, the wickedness that lies in their heart, they're in, in bondage to false direction. They're in, in, in bondage, and God, they're listening to the world. And God, you would speak to them about the freedom that you offer, that they can come and, and follow you and serve you, and you'll give them joy and peace and freedom. God, we thank you. We thank you for who you are, and we thank you for the great love that you have shown us in Christ. We, we thank you that you love us in spite of our sin. And that, God, you give us hope in you. God, be with us now as we have this time of invitation, as we sing, and, God, as people respond, Lord, I just pray that we would be faithful. And, God, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to invite you to stand with me this morning as we get ready to sing. As our service is closing, I want to encourage you this, that if you know Christ and you have been delivered from bondage, I, I hope that you reflect often on the way that you should live because of his deliverance. He, he has delivered you from bondage. He's delivered you from sin, and he, he calls upon you to live a life that brings him glory and honor and praise. But friends, if you're here this morning not knowing Christ, you're under the bondage of sin, the slavery of sin, whatever you want to call it. Today there is hope. There is deliverance from Christ. He has come and, and given his life so that you could be delivered out of that, so that you could have hope. Friends, I, I, my hope is that this morning as we sing, that you would respond to the message of God, the hope that he has, the, the deliverance. Because, friends, without it, there is no hope. There is no other way. If you do not know Christ this morning, would you come and let me share with you how you can know him. But friends, if you know Christ, he has delivered you out of that bondage. It's time that we live like it. It's time that we reflect who he is. Would you respond to God's word this morning as we sing together?